Welcome back to the program. Back in the 1980s, we thought Japan was not only the number one economic power, but we thought it was taking over the world. The Japanese bought iconic properties like Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach. We were looking at Japanese schooling and trying to emulate their economic success. Just as we want our kids to learn Mandarin today, back then we wanted them to learn Japanese. All that has changed. Japan's economy has spent 20 years in the doldrums. The Japanese population is aging, and it's anything but a dynamic society. How are all these events related? How does the rise of China, the stagnation of Japan, and the insecurity of the U.S. all fit together? And how has Japan, especially since the multiple and overlapping tragedies of Fukushima, been able to cope with its place in the world? Is there something we can learn from the way Japan deals with adversity? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, David Pilling. He is the Asia editor of the Financial Times. He was previously the Tokyo bureau chief for the Financial Times. His reporting from Japan and Asia have won him several prizes, including the Society of Publishers in Asia Award. It is my pleasure to welcome David Pilling to the program to talk about bending adversity, Japan and the art of survival. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here, too. Great to have you here. In order to understand Japan today, contemporary Japan, what's gone on the past 20, 30 years, how important is it that we really have a deep-seated understanding of Japanese history? I think it is very important. I mean, uh, one of the things that we need to remember, of course, is Japan's remarkable recovery um, and growth and development after the Second World War. You know, this was a country that was uh, utterly uh, defeated, uh, you know, bombed uh, into smithereens. And um, the Americans had ambitions for Japan after the war, but they were very limited ambitions. And there were American politicians who talked about Japan being uh, a provider of napkin holders and beads and the sort of things that we might imagine, uh, you know, the Philippines producing or, um, you know, much poorer countries than Japan. Um, but Japan produced cars and uh, stereo systems and, uh, you know, became this sort of god um economy um, that really woke the world up. And I think it is important for us to remember that because, of course, the impression of Japan we have now, as you say, is obviously stagnant, aging uh, economy that has sort of gone off the rails. But I think unless we remember where it has come from and how far it came, um, we have a sort of slightly false impression uh, of where it is today. And to what extent can that that existed after the war really be brought to the fore in dealing with some of the issues that Japan faces today? Well, Japan is a different society today. It's absolutely true. Um, then it was a fast-growth um, economy, you know, initially growing at 10% a year, the kind of rates that we now associate with China. That sort of leveled off in the 80s. It grew much more slowly, but still pretty fast by today's standards. You know, then 1990, the bubble burst, and it had its own, let's say, layman shock. Um, you had a, a collapse of the... Um, uh, uh, property market, a collapse of the equity market, and uh, and Japan, in a sense, was never the same again. You've also you have to overlay um, on top of that um, the fact that Japan began to age at about that time. Its workforce began to um, shrink, 
So it's by no means the same economy that it was um, in the catch-up years. But in a sense, you could argue, well, of course not. Um, you know, it became a wealthy economy. It's still an extraordinarily wealthy economy today, despite 20 years of, you know, so-called, um, you know, the so-called two lost decades. Um, you know, it's still one of the richest um, countries in the world. It's still the third biggest economy of, uh, in the world with an, a population of only 128 million people. So, sure, Japan is not the sort of flaming force, uh, rising power that it was before. Um, but it's not, I think, the disaster that sometimes make it out to be. Has it been a zero-sum game in the sense that the rise of China and the other strong Asian economies has had, if not an economic effect directly, a social and cultural effect on Japan? Well, uh, yes and no, I would say. I mean, in a sense, you know, uh, Japan has suffered um, what many of the wealthy Western societies have suffered, which is that once you allow, um, you know, a billion Chinese and a billion Indians uh, and uh, 250 million Indonesians into the global market, which is in a sense what has happened with the World Trade Organization and, and the kind of... Um, you know, leveling of trade rules around the world. Once you let um, all those people into the global economy, then you do get uh, increased competition. And you have seen, uh, you know, Japanese industry, say the electronics industry, come under enormous pressure. And you have seen um, some jobs that were in Japan move out of Japan to China and to other countries. But in a sense, you've seen exactly the same with the United States. Um, and, you know, with, with Europe. So, um, yes, you've seen that competition. In another way, of course, the rise of China is the best thing that could happen to Japan in a purely economic sense, because Japan has, a, um, as you've said, a shrinking population, uh, an economy that's mature, and, but it also has, you know, excellent technology, and it has a lot of cash. And in a sense, um, China, this enormous market, um, on its doorstep um, should be a godsend. And, it, and to some extent, it has been a godsend that uh, Japan actually grew for, for uh, you know, a mature economy quite fast between about 2002 and 2007. And a lot of that was on the back of China. But then, of course, China poses another problem, which is um, China is um, not only a, an economy, it's also a political force. And, of course, it's a country that Japan fought in the Second World War, and it, that Japan invaded, and where Japan committed all sorts of um, barbarities, which are very much remembered in China. And so you have a now a, a rising China, a stronger China, a, a, a richer economy, a, a stronger navy, and, and a country that has not forgotten any of that history. And so this is um, it's a double-edged sword, I would say, for Japan. And to what extent is the current tension with China, particularly over these couple of islands, to what extent is that having an economic impact in terms of its economic relations with China? Well, there's a couple of things that are happening there, I think. Um, in one sense, uh, I think that the, that the uh, tension with China has galvanized Japan. So um, as many of your listeners will know, 
and the kind of fairly recently embarked on a sort of radical economic policy. Some people think it's madness, but some people think it's the exact thing that it should have been doing maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So what it's trying to do is reflate the economy. The economy has been in deflation um, for 15 years, and it's trying to get to a normal level of um, inflation, in a sense, by printing money, by running the printing presses. And, and so uh, the fact that there's this tension in China, I think, has, has concentrated uh, um, the mind um, uh, in Japan. Talk a little bit about how serious this tension is, how serious this conflict is about the Senkaku Islands. Well, it's very serious, I think. Um, these islands uh, are uninhabited. Um, there, there are goats and moles that live on the island. It sits uh, between um, the most southern islands uh, in Japan, Okinawa, basically, and Taiwan. They're a bit closer to Taiwan than they are to Okinawa. And Japan incorporated these islands into its territory in 1895. Um, and the argument is basically, to, to, to make the argument more crude than it really is, that the Japanese say that they incorporated these islands legally that the Chinese had, had no real de facto control of these islands in 1895. The Chinese said that the Japanese stole them in war. Uh, the, the Japanese and the Chinese were fighting a war that year. And what's happened now, I think, is that, um, uh, that, that for many, many decades, um, this uh, year has been kind of pushed to one side, and neither China nor Japan has wanted to um, uh, stir the waters very much. But now China is feeling much stronger, and China is feeling that it can begin to challenge what it sees as um, historical wrongs. Um, and it could be quite serious, I think. Uh, for China, from China's perspective, uh, this is about its narrative of a hundred years of uh, humiliation pushed by the West, the Opium Wars, by Britain, and then by Japan. And it's also about um, strategy. Uh, China wants to push out from its coast. It wants a blue water navy. And these islands sit on what, from China's perspective, is called the first island chain. It's kind of a ring of islands um, uh, in the Western Pacific around China. And China would like to push out into the Pacific more broadly to begin to challenge American sort of dominance of the Pacific. And so I think these islands would be strategically very important for China. So I don't think this is just rhetoric. I think there's something deeper at, at play here. And because of that, um, it could get quite uh, quite serious. I mean, at the worst, it could lead to an outright conflict. There could certainly be an accident. Um, you know, there are planes, there are boats circling these islands constantly. The potential for an accident uh, is not low. And uh, I think the position of America is quite, kind of interesting because on the one hand, America is the referee and it's the peacekeeper in this neighborhood. And, but that role is changing and you might argue diminishing. So in the, on the one hand, uh, I think China and Japan could raise the rhetoric because they know that America is there as referee. But on the other, the more they raise the rhetoric, the more chances there are for miscalculation something to go wrong for an escalation. I mean, it's not clear that America would necessarily play that, um, 
that judicial, that, that um, referee role that the other two sides uh, think it would. So it's a very, um, it's a very precarious situation. My best guess would be that this will not lead to conflict, but you know there is always a chance that it could and that things could get out of hand. You talk about this as as a galvanizing force in some respects in Japan. To one extent also was the tragedy of, of Fukushima, the earthquake, the tsunami, and, and the nuclear disaster. To what extent was that a kind of wake-up call in many respects for Japan? I think it was in a sense. I want to exaggerate, but this was a huge earthquake. Uh, it destroyed a big chunk of Japanese GDP. And I think um, uh, in a sort of practical economic sense, um, it closed down all of Japan's nuclear power stations. So before the earthquake struck in 2011, um, about 30% of Japan's electricity was being produced by nuclear power stations. And within a year of the uh, tsunami and earthquake, all those nuclear power stations were shut down. And in fact, I'm sitting in Tokyo now, and there's not a single nuclear power station operating in Japan today. So that is a dramatic change. And I think the establishment in Japan began to think, well, you know, is this the final straw? If we don't have cheap electricity, if we don't have stable electricity, and what is going to happen to our industry? And is all our industry going to move abroad to China? Uh, are we going to be able to produce cars here and steel here? And there was a real fear that, um, you know, that Japan's way of life even, but certainly Japan's industrial um, complex, was going to be compromised by the fact that uh, that all these power stations were turned off. And, and you could argue, um, I mean, I wouldn't want to overdo it, but you could argue that this is a catalyst. Um, I would say that I think a bigger catalyst is in China. Uh, and the fact that China overtook Japan uh, to become the second biggest economy in the world in 2010, the fact that China has now made it clear that it would like um, the islands that Japan calls the Senkaku and that uh, China calls the Giaoyu, that it would like those islands back in China's um, uh, in China's terms, and you know this is this is worried Japan, this is frightened Japan, this is this is galvanized and catalyzed Japan, and I would say that of the two, that is a bigger influence. But but the uh, the earthquake and tsunami certainly had uh, a, you know a psychological impact. Yes, I think that's true. One of the things you talk about historically is that Japan has repeatedly had these periods of stasis and then tremendous forward movement. Talk a little about that. Well, that, in a sense, is the is the cliche of Japan. I mean, I've, uh, you know, there are uh, most cliches have an element of truth in them, and and this one does too. And you know, and the two big moments when Japan appeared to change almost overnight. Um, was one when um, the black ships of Commodore Perry and the American um, gunboats showed up in uh, Tokyo Bay in 1853. And Japan had been a feudal society for 250 years that had been closed off from the world. It appeared not to have changed very much. It hadn't been fighting any wars, either internally or externally. Um, and suddenly, because it was faced with this big challenge from the West, it sort of 
um, got rid of feudalism almost overnight. It became a modern society. It got a parliament. Uh, it got you know a modern economy, a steel industry. It began to make ships, uh, and um, you know it became uh, you know in a, in a sense a sort of a great Western power, which is what it wanted to be. And then, of course, tragically, it began to invade um, other parts of Asia. And the second big turning point was in 1945, when Japan had um, tried to become a great power, great in quotation marks, um, through empire. And, uh, and then it was horribly defeated uh, in the war, devastated, bombed, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and there were maybe 60 cities that were firebombed and almost sort of totally destroyed. And Japan in a sense, changed direction again very dramatically where it had tried to pursue becoming a great power. And again, I, I emphasize great in quotation marks um, through military means, through empire. It became a great power through economic means. And, and, it, and it indeed embarked upon what was, you know, a tremendous period of economic growth, you know, what some people termed a miracle. So there were these two periods where outside pressure and first of all, the black ships of Commodore Perry, then defeat, you know, nuclear bombs, uh, MacArthur, and the U.S. occupation, um, forced Japan to change quite radically. And uh, it was Kissinger who said that, um, that Japan was, of all the nations that he knew, the most capable of change. It's kind of ironic because we now we tend to think of Japan as a nation that never changes, but it sort of stubbornly sticks to, uh, um, you know, sticks to the old ways. But Kissinger said, no, no, that's not true. Uh, because Japan has such a strong sense of itself, it in fact is capable of dramatic change, you know, overthrowing an emperor um, in just a few years after 1945 uh, and becoming this great economic power, ditching feudalism and becoming, a, a, you know, a parliamentary democracy or at least a democracy of sorts. Um, uh, in the 1860s and 1870s. So, um, so you know, we, we ought not to think, I think, of Japan as uh, a country that never changes. And in some senses, it's a, it's a country that is, uh, has changed more dramatically than many countries, uh, you know, than, than, than any other country. And, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out uh, the fact that the possibility of Japan, you know, changing again. One of the things we talk about is all of this in kind of economic terms, both microeconomics, macroeconomics, mm -hmm. and the political and geopolitical consequence of all of this. What are you seeing in terms of how all we've been talking about is affecting ordinary people, be they in government and industry, be they in the arts or the academies? How is it affecting them? Well, Japan's gone through this kind of, in a sense, weird period. You know, it's had deflation for 15 or 20 years, a period of falling prices. And it was a catch-up economy. It was going to become number one. There was a famous book called Japan as Number One. And this idea that Japan was going to overtake America became a kind of a, a big and strong narrative. And then suddenly in 1990, that all ended. And so in a sense, that was a devastating blow to Japan. You know, its whole post-war project suddenly um, uh, sort of came to a, um, you know, a sudden halt. In another sense, I think it woke Japan up to 
other possibilities. Uh, Japan has put huge emphasis on economic growth, on GDP, the cult of GDP, if you like. And since 1990 and since the economic slowdown, there has been, I would say, more emphasis on, you know, what is this all for? Why, what, uh, what is a mature economy? Uh, what is a good work-life balance? And, uh, you know, how should we organize society? And I think these questions are by no means sorted out. Uh, and um, there is much criticism of Japan and some of it justified that, you know, it's sort of cracked in old social ways, hierarchical ways, um, uh, relationships between sexes, you know, men and women look, you know, pretty old-fashioned. And I think some of this criticism is, is right. But nonetheless, I think there's been a lot kind of bubbling up under the surface uh, in the last, 15 or 20 years, and Japan has probably changed more and sort of pushed and prodded at its own society more than the outside world is aware of. And, and in some ways, uh, this has been a healthy development, I would argue. Um, there is a, a very famous Japanese author called um, uh, Murakami Haruki, uh, or in English, um, Haruki Murakami, who's written many books which have become, you know, bestsellers in, in America and, and, and elsewhere. And he says, you know, yes, Japan has been lost in the last 20 years, um, uh, but, but to be lost is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, um, uh, to be lost is to try to find something new, to, to seek something new. And without trying to romanticize that, uh, some of this is purely... Um, you know, the fact that the economy has gone wrong and things are not as good as they used to be. But that also opens up new doors and new possibilities and new ways of thinking. And I think you do see that in Japan. Uh, you see people wondering whether... There's a kind of a hippie movement in Japan, for example. Um, people thinking, you know, we don't need to be wealthy, we don't need to be rich. And one may think that's very naive, but it's sort of it's a new... Friend, it's sort of an underground um, uh, movement. And, uh, you know, one could argue that these, make, these kind of things make society kind of richer and more interesting. And uh, so there's been, a, there's been a number of kind of contradictory forces, I think, that have, uh, that have been unleashed um, in the last, uh, you know, the last couple of decades. And the idea that Japan has just stagnated and has just gone nowhere and that nothing has happened I think underestimate um, some of these subterranean um, things that have been going on in Japan. Has it been to Japan's advantage in some ways that it is as closed as it is and that these changes that you're talking about that we haven't seen, that the world in many ways hasn't really seen, has been allowed to happen by themselves essentially and has that given them more freedom to make this transition? Well, to some extent, but again, I think it's, um, uh, you know, there are pros and cons to this. I mean, Japan is an island. It's an island 500 miles off the coast of China, and it can be very inward-looking. You know, people call it Galapagos. Um, I mean, for, just to, for example, the Japanese um, had uh, mobile phones 10 or 15 years ago that had cameras that could surf the Internet, and, you know, basically doing what the iPhone does today. 
Um, but they never uh, exploited that. They never sold that to the rest of the world. They never made uh, huge profits uh, as, as Apple has done. So in a sense, you know, Japan inward-lookingness has allowed it, as you say, to kind of do things in its own way, to go its own way. And to some extent, that's been good and comfortable. And, but in another way, it kind of missed the trick because some of the things that Japan could have done and some of the things I think it will need to do in the future have been made more difficult by the fact that it's sort of a little bit out of kilter with the rest of the world. It's a bit too comfortable. It's a bit too, if you're a person, you might say it's a bit too shy and introverted. And, you know, it should be, the Japanese should speak better English. They should have more immigration. There should be more Japanese going out into the rest of the world. And, if the Japanese were a little bit more integrated into the global economy, I think uh, you know they'd do better economically, and and they'd um, you know it'd probably be overall a better society. So there are pros and cons, and um, it's not black and white. Uh, um, but I think on balance, uh, Japan would be better off if it learned how to be part of the world a little bit more than it, than it has done so far. David Pilling, his book is Bending Adversity, Japan and the Art of Survival. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, and thanks for the absolutely excellent questions. I really appreciate that. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 